Well, with that, I want to welcome you uh, to week number two of our Christmas series, Upside Down Christmas. And I don't know if any of you have ever read about this or, or seen it, but for some uh, people, upside down Christmas trees are a thing. Have you seen that anywhere? There's some celebrities, there's some designers, people who like to do this. Uh, actually, a couple years ago, 2017, Target was selling um, an upside down Christmas tree for almost $1,000. And uh, so this is kind of a fad these days, but it's interesting. Some people believe that it is a, a, a fad with some ancient roots. Uh, some people claim that, that upside-down Christmas trees have been used all the way back to medieval times. Uh, some people think they were used to symbolize the Trinity, the triangle that's created. Uh, truth is, I have to tell you this as a historian, no one really knows for sure, but here's what I can tell you for sure. Matthew's account of the first Christmas truly does turn everything upside down. And Matthew's Christmas story, if you read it and you push away the, 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 the images and the conceptions that we have put on Christmas, if you read Matthew's story without that, it really is kind of confusing and kind of dark at times. I think if you read Matthew's Christmas story, Matthew 1 and 2, and really understand it, you're going to see intrigue, and you're going to see uh, ostracism, you're going to see violence and danger and even death. It's certainly not the warm, cozy Christmas that we often want to see as the Christmas story and that some of you uh, want to watch on Hallmark Christmas movies. Not me, uh, but some of you want to see that. See, the truth is... Uh, it's a joke, people. Lighten up, okay? <laughs> it's okay to watch all my Christmas movies. I'm just not going to join you in it, all right? You thought I was being serious. Um, uh, the truth is, Jesus does come, and he has come to turn our lives upside down. Amen? Amen. He has come not to just be a nice addition to the life that we're already building for ourselves. Jesus has come to turn our lives upside down. And last week, if you were here, you, you would see in that genealogy that we studied how Jesus turns many of our categories for looking at people upside down. And we're going to see even more so in the rest of Matthew 1 how he does that. So this week, we're looking at Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. And we're going to be asking, what do you do when life doesn't make sense? What do you do when life doesn't make sense? If you're not to Matthew 1, verse 18, uh, and following. I want you to get there. And as you're getting there today, we're going to be studying the story of Joseph, Joseph, the human father of Jesus. And because this is kind of heavy, I thought I would begin with something a little more lighthearted. You know, I, I am, like you, I think, so thankful uh, for the internet, right? I mean, we have this amazing, awesome, like multi-trillion dollar technology, and it exists so uh, we can all spend time researching uh, fascinating sites like awkwardfamilyphotos.com. And if you've ever been there, among other things, you will find lots of Christmas photos that people actually took and that people actually sent to their friends. And they're just awkward. I want to show you a few of those. Here's the first one, and I just have to ask you, um, why, would, why would anyone put up a picture like this. I mean, what's wrong with this guy's neck? It looks very painful. And, and that's a grown man wearing a onesie, okay? I mean, can we all say awkward? 
And then this next one, what is this picture saying? We journeyed all the way to our front yard to cut down this festive shrub. Just kind of, kind of awkward. And then you got to love this one. Um, everybody is kind of having fun with Dad's strange idea for the Christmas picture, except for little sister who wants to kill someone. <laughs> Again, they just, you know, somebody actually took and published this picture. Or, or there's more uh, like this. Uh, one of the themes you find in many of them, there's always at least one party pooper um, in the Christmas family photo, right? Does anybody have one of those in, in your pictures? And then um, sometimes in some families, there's more than one, like in this vintage photo. Again, sent out at Christmas. Um, you know, they just can't wait to have a holly jolly Christmas, evidently, in this family uh, this year. Um, even the dog looks upset. And then this next one, I actually do not know where to begin with this one. There's just so much wrong here. Merry Christmas from me and my monkey. Um, I, I just, I don't understand. And then this one made me ask, why didn't I think of that? Because there is nothing that says Merry Christmas more than a guy in black doing the splits in front of a Christmas tree, right? Awkward, just, just awkward. And, and then this next picture is an, amazing, is an amazing one. I want you to think about this whole family. You know they spent like a half an hour trying to get the perfect photo, and this is the best they could got, you know, get the kids are making faces, people are unhappy, grandpa's going, can we just get that picture and be done with this right now? You know, it's just, it's just dripping with, with holiday spirit. And then before I show you the last one, I have to ask, how many of you have ever made your, your kids take Christmas pictures, right, and maybe they didn't want to? Has that ever happened to you? Um, how many of you felt like this afterwards? Just kind of captures the essence of the season. Joy to the world, you know, joy to the world. Well, awkward family pictures, we've all probably taken them. And the interesting thing is, you could say that we find a very awkward family picture this first Christmas. In Matthew 1, what we see, honestly, in the passage we're going to study, is about as awkward a family portrait as you can get. I want to kind of get into this by showing you a classical painting by Rembrandt. And this is a, a painting that is meant to symbolize and, and to describe what's going on in our passage. And I want you to notice some things uh, about this. I think he really captures the darkness and the difficulty going on. And uh, I want you to notice as we kind of zoom in how Joseph puts Mary in the light. And Mary's peaceful. Mary's serene. Why? Because she's already heard from the angel. She already knows what's happening. She is at peace. And now Rembrandt is showing the baby already being born, but he meant that this picture would be an expression of Mary's thoughts. And in Mary's mind, she sees her baby as born. But then let's zoom in again, and here's Joseph. This is intended to portray the moment before he hears from the angel. And the angel is bending over him. The angel is almost ready to speak. And Notice at this moment, Joseph is literally in the dark. He's troubled. He's confused. 
He's got his head in his hands. Why? Why? Well, because his fiance, the woman he's betrothed to, she's pregnant, and he knows the baby isn't his. Now, to make it worse, Mary is saying things to Joseph about an angel appearing to her and about this baby being conceived by the Holy Spirit. Again, we know the rest of the story, but put yourself in Joseph's shoes. Would you believe that? And all God's people said, no. It doesn't make sense. And so as you look at this picture, maybe you can relate to the expression on his face. Maybe, maybe you had an expression on your face like that this week. Maybe you got a doctor's report, and it's not good. And your, your whole life, I mean, you've been trying to take care of your health, and it just doesn't make sense. Why is this happening? Maybe you've been working hard all your life, but just recently you've lost your job. And you have looked and you've looked for work and you really can't find anything good or what you've found that you could do just doesn't pay enough to make it. It doesn't make sense. Or maybe there's a relationship in your life. It's just not working out. And it seems that the harder you try to fix things, it only makes it worse. Maybe you feel like Joseph and maybe you feel like you just got, I don't know, punched in the gut. Maybe life It's not making sense to you. So what do you do when life doesn't make sense? And what we're going to see as we work our way through this account is that Joseph's story tells us that when life doesn't make sense, what we need to do is renew our focus on obeying God. Obedience is always the best response when life doesn't make sense. And I'm highlighting this because here's the thing I know about you and I know about me. When life gets confusing, when life gets troubling, when life doesn't make sense, what do we tend to do in terms of our relationship with God? We, we tend, don't we, to pull back. We, we, we tend to withdraw from God, to question him, to get farther away from him. And I am telling you, I am trying to help you to see today that that is the very worst thing you can do. When you don't know what's going on, when you don't understand why this is happening, the best thing you can do is press closer to God and renew your commitment to following God and obeying God and do the things that we, he tells you to do. And that's what Joseph's story is doing. See, we're going to see in this story that, that when life doesn't make sense, we can learn that God can still be trusted. We can learn that God is still good, that God is still keeping all of his promises to us, even if we don't see them in the moment right now. Another thing that this story is teaching us, and it's something we don't like to think about, but sometimes obedience, which is really what it means to to follow Christ, sometimes obedience is very costly. Have you ever considered how costly that first Christmas was for Joseph? See, it may have cost Joseph more than any other human being. And we're going to just see that Joseph paid an incredible price that first Christmas. In fact, you can write this down. Joseph's life is going to show us that we never truly celebrate the Savior's birth without paying a price. Without paying a price. Now, with that in mind, I want you to look at Matthew 1, beginning in verse 18. We're going to read our text for this morning. This is what Matthew writes. He says, this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. 
But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Now I want to start this morning with what it says about Joseph in verse 19. Maybe you would want to underline this, that he was a righteous man, a righteous man. There's actually a real rich history behind this idea. And the Hebrew word uh, for a righteous man is pronounced sadiq. Sadiq. And this is Joseph's identity. Joseph was a sadiq. Uh, we're going to put up there the actual Hebrew word for all of you who read Hebrew so you can see it. Um, that's what it looks like. And, and I thought it would be helpful if we could just kind of say the word together, sadiq. Can you say that with me? Sadiq. And if you want to say it really right, you need to get a little spray of mist going out. You know, when you do it, it might get on the person in front of you. Sadiq. That's how, that's how you say this. Now, I've learned a lot about Joseph from a scholar named Scott McKnight. He was a PhD, a New, a New Testament scholar that I did PhD work with a few years ago. And in some of his writings, he discusses Joseph's status as a Sadiq. And what this means is that Joseph was known for his uncompromising obedience to Torah, to the law of Moses. He did not eat unclean foods. He did not mix with the wrong kinds of people. He did not keep his shop open on the Sabbath so he could make a few extra drachmas. He was a Sadiq. And this was his identity. And everyone knew it. No one was going to invite Joseph over for ham sandwiches. Uh, eating with tax collectors and prostitutes. You see, Joseph, he really was the kind of man that most people want to be. Oh, like a businessman in our day wants to be Jeff Bezos. Like someone born in Bakersfield wishes they could live anywhere else. <laughs> Sorry if you were born in Bakersfield. but <laughs> Like a Dodgers fan wishes and would give anything to have one-third of the World Series rings that the Giants have in this century. <laughs> like all those things, an Israelite wanted to be a Sadiq because then you were respected. Then you were someone. That was Joseph. But you see, now he is a Sadiq with a problem. The girl he's promised to marry is having a baby. And whoever the father is, Joseph knows it's not him. Now, Nazareth... Where they lived is a small town. And as a general rule, I think we would understand that a lot of gossip goes on in a small town. And so what we have here, think about it, is a Sadiq with a pregnant fiancé in a small village where everyone thinks they knows everyone's business. Now, we live on the other side of the Christmas story, and we have a tendency, because we know how this works out, to rush to the end of the story where everything works out okay. And you might even be tempted to think that Joseph was kind of slow spiritually, you know, not as far along in advance as you are. 
But he should have figured it out. He should have gotten the point a lot sooner. And if you do that, you're probably flattering yourself, but you're also missing the whole point of what Joseph is learning and what we can learn from him. See, there's some amazing stuff that's going on around Christmas besides how Jesus got here. And for one thing, what I want us to see today is that you miss, if you don't pay attention, how God is in Joseph beginning to redefine the meaning of true righteousness. Now, to get this, what's being taught, we're going to have to walk in Joseph's shoes for a while. And I think as we do, we will see that the very first Christmas required real, true, courageous obedience, especially for Joseph. I want to point out uh, two truths for our lives. First of all, truly celebrating Christmas may cost us our reputation and identity. You see, that is exactly what the very first Christmas cost Joseph. Again, put yourself in Joseph's place. Your fiancé is pregnant, and your reputation, your identity revolve around one thing, your commitment to Torah. What the Torah says you do, that's who you are. And the Torah has very, very clear instructions about what a Sadiq does when his fiancée is in Mary's condition. There's actually a whole section on this in Deuteronomy chapter 22. You can look up verses 13 through 30 later on. It covers marriage violations. I want you to listen to one verse, verse 21. It says that if a woman is pledged to be married and she's unfaithful, here's what is to be done. She shall be brought to the door of her father's house, and there the men of her town shall stone her to death. She has done a disgraceful thing in Israel by being promiscuous while still in her father's house. You must purge the evil from among you. Now, this might seem kind of unreal to us, but maybe in recent years you've heard news stories of similar cases in other countries around the world. We don't know what Joseph was thinking. Maybe Joseph would think she'd been seduced by another man. In this case, according to Torah, they were both to be stoned. But whatever had happened, the law was painfully clear. Joseph's reputation as a Sadiq was on the line. And everyone in the village, they knew what Joseph would do. Now, there's another option laid out in Numbers chapter 5, uh, verses 11 through 31. And I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's really kind of a strange passage. But it says there that if a husband suspected his wife of unfaithfulness and she claimed innocence, that he could take her to a priest and the priest would have her drink something called the water of bitterness. And verse 27 says, if she has defiled herself and been unfaithful to her husband, then when she is made to drink the water that brings a curse, it will go into her and cause bitter suffering. Her abdomen will swell and her thigh waste away and she will become accursed among her people. That's Numbers 5. Anybody been doing your devotions in Numbers 5 recently? Probably not. But the Torah is real clear. Joseph's reputation as a Sadiq is on the line. Everyone knows what he should do. All of his fellow Sadakim, they would have told him, this is a sin that must be publicly exposed, publicly punished. But we find out that Joseph cannot bring himself to do this. Now, to understand this tension, we have to do a little work in, in grammar for a moment, okay? And uh, we did something very similar to this a few weeks ago. Some of you will remember this. It's actually a very similar grammatical construction. But I'm confident that most of you washed all that grammar information out of your mind, don't want to live there very long if it's about grammar, right? And so this involves, in the Greek text, what is uh, a participle. 
And you probably remember from English class that a, a participle is an ing verb, probably the simplest way to remember it. It's sometimes called a, a verbal adjective, like, you know, the, the growing boy or the barking dog or the whining Dodgers fan, something like that. And what we, what we run into in verse 19 is what is in, in Greek grammar called a circumstantial participle. And this just means that the participle is translated in different ways. There's about nine of them according to the circumstances. So you have to look at what's going on in the text around to know what the most likely uh, translation would be. And the literal translation here would be this. Being a righteous man, Joseph did not want to expose Mary to public disgrace. Now, this participle can be and is translated in a variety of ways, like because Joseph was a righteous man, or while he was, or by means of in order to. But the question is, how do you translate it here? And and you can translate it causally, which is how most of us think about it, because he was a righteous man, this is what he did. And some versions, like the NIV, do that. And so the idea then is that because he's righteous, he doesn't want to cause a ruckus. He doesn't want to humiliate Mary. But there's another New Testament scholar named Don Hagner, and he suggests that probably the best translation is what would be called concessive, which is related to the word concede, although he was righteous. Although he was a sadiq, a righteous man, he didn't want to cause a scandal. Or hear it this way, same idea, in spite of the fact that he was righteous. You see, in the old system, the way people thought about righteousness, righteousness would demand that, that she be exposed because sinners must be excluded. Standards have to be maintained. In the old system, righteousness always separates itself from sin and from sinners. A righteous man would not hesitate. And yet, Joseph hesitated. He couldn't bring himself to say the words, to go public, even though he was a sadiq, a righteous man. And again, it doesn't take much imagination to know how he must have agonized over this day after day. Again, if you pay careful attention, you'll see that when the angel comes to Joseph, Joseph already knows that Mary is pregnant. Now, here's a question. Have you thought about this? How did Joseph find out? Who told him that Mary was pregnant? And the answer, most likely, is Mary. And once again, put yourself in his place. This is real life. You are engaged to a fiancé, and she comes to you, and she says to you, I have some bad news and some good news. The bad news is I'm pregnant, even though we're not married. The good news is I haven't slept with anyone. I mean, think about this. She says, in essence, an angel came to me and said, Hail Mary, you who are full of grace. She says, I'm going to have a miracle baby, Joseph. All generations will call me blessed, except for Protestants. (laughs) And a desperation pass in a football game as the game winds down and is about over will be named after me. You know, uh, it's going to be an amazing thing, Joseph. I'm going to conceive a child miraculously, Joseph, even though I'm a virgin. I know it's never happened before, Joseph, but there's a first time for everything. How convinced would you be? 
And again, imagine that she has protested her, her innocence and imagine his struggle. Uh, we know that most likely Mary is about 13 or 14 years old, according to most New Testament scholarship. Most likely his fa- her father had arranged this marriage uh, with Joseph. Joseph probably doesn't know her terribly well at this point, and she seems to be sincere, but really an angel, <laughs> a, a virgin birth. Again, all God's people would say, no, no way, can't happen. And so uh, Matthew tells us that Joseph decides to divorce her quietly. Now, some of you are aware of this, but a betrothal, uh, which we kind of line up with an engagement, was something much more serious in that day. It was akin to marriage, except the marriage had not been consummated, and so to break it off required an act of divorce. And Joseph's going to do this because this would minimize her suffering, but it would still maintain his status as a sadiq, as a righteous man. And then in verse 20, God sends a message to Joseph. I want you to take a look at this screen, and I want you to see if you can figure out what the key word is in this part of the verse. Just check it out and see if you can tell. Everybody say it. After. It's the word after. Now, here's the question. Why did God make Joseph wait until after when he had to think and he had to struggle with all of this? Why couldn't an angel have have come to him, you know, like ahead of time when it was convenient and comfortable and explain it to him so he wouldn't have all that anxiety, just take all that anxiety away? I have a question for you. Is it possible that anxiety removal is not God's number one goal for Joseph? Or maybe for you and me. Is it possible that in getting his world turned upside down and having to struggle between what he, he thought that a sadiq ought to do and his longing to show compassion to this young girl, is it possible that maybe Joseph was being prepared by God to come to a whole new understanding of what righteousness truly is? Is it possible that Joseph is being prepared by God to come to a whole new understanding of whose opinion really matters. Does the Spirit of God have something that we might call a ministry of disequilibrium that God allows to take place in our lives so that maybe sometimes he can get us ready to let go of the way things have always looked and begin to see things more closely like God sees them? Because God... And this little baby are going to redefine righteousness. And I say this because I know some of you are here today and you are confused and you are disoriented about something. And I just want to suggest that maybe it's not because you're doing something wrong or because God is unfaithful. Maybe you're about to grow. Maybe what you need to do is keep waiting on God and keep trusting in God and keep praying and talking to God. Just obey. Just refuse to violate God's word and work. Just trust that God will do something in your life, even if you cannot see it yet. So that's what happens here. Joseph is confused, but he stays faithful. I think we also see a second thing in this story. Truly celebrating Christmas may cost us a comfortable life. 
And for Joseph, that's exactly what resulted from the loss of his reputation and identity as a sadiq. Again, in verse 20, the whole verse, it says, But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Now, why would Joseph be afraid to marry Mary? Of course, Joseph would be afraid of offending God and violating the Torah. But it's more than that. Joseph would be afraid of losing his reputation and identity, knowing how this would change his life forever. He would be afraid about what everyone would think about him. Joseph knew all about his own doubts when Mary told him about the angel, but he knows there is no way the people in that town are ever going to believe that an angel came to a poor virgin in an obscure village and that a teenage virgin girl got pregnant by God. People would think... What people always think when a pregnant girl gets married. He knew that if he married her, his friends would also never accept his story. He would not be invited anymore to the homes of the other Sadakim. He would lose their business. He would never again be admired and, and be respected as a lover of Torah. And that had been his whole life. He knew that if he committed himself to this baby, to this one who would be known as Jesus, that he would do so at enormous personal cost. That his whole reputation, the work of his life, would be trashed. See, the angel says, do not be afraid. And remarkably, Don't miss this. Joseph, uh, we are told by Matthew, does precisely what the angel commands him to do. In fact, he does two courageously obedient things in verses 24 and 25. You can write this down. First, he took Mary home as his wife. And this is a legal step. It meant that he was publicly claiming her as his wife. It means that Joseph completed the wedding ceremony publicly declared she's his bride, and then he named the baby. And this is too a legal action because in the naming of this child, he's doing a second courageous thing. Joseph is publicly adopting this child as his son. Now, here's what this means. Now, legally, Joseph has deliberately and publicly tied his destiny to the lives of two stained reputations. See, Joseph believed the word of God's messenger, the angel, but he didn't know how this was all going to work out. I mean, do you understand? Do you see this? Joseph makes a decision that when you get it, will just awe anyone who comprehends. He has decided that his days as a sadiq, as a righteous man in the eyes of the people around him, those days are over, and whatever the future may hold for him, it will not be a life of comfort and respectability. I want to show you how fully Joseph bet the farm here, how he risked everything on what God was doing. I want you right now, if you would, to turn to the person next to you and tell them if you know the answer to this question. How many brothers and sisters did Jesus have? Can't look it up real quick. Put your phones down. Uh, What were their names? Just, Just try real quick for a few seconds. Those of you who think you have some ideas, go ahead. Some of you aren't even trying. That's okay. Well, I'll tell you the answer, okay? We find this answer in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6. And the answer is that 
Jesus had four brothers. They were named James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. And his sisters were named Heather and Brittany. Um, (laughs) Just made that up. Um, We actually don't know how many sisters he had, uh, what their names were. But we are told in Mark 6, 3, the names of his brothers. And it's a little hard for us to see this in the English translation. But I want you to see the significance. Let me, let me read this first. Look at these names. Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? Now, what we may not see is that each of these names in Greek, these brothers' names in Greek, these are the Greek versions of Hebrew names for one of Israel's great patriarchs. Jacob, Joseph, Judah, and Simeon. And scholars say that it may well be that Mary and Joseph gave their sons these names because they trusted that through their son, Yeshua, Jesus, God is going to act one more time to renew his people, that God at last, through their son, is going to fulfill the dream that's been told throughout the Old Testament of a redeemed community. And so they give their sons these names of these founders of the redeemed community because God is recreating, God is reconstituting that community. He is creating a family. And so every time they, they called one of those sons to dinner, every time Jesus says the names of one of his brothers they are remembering God's love for his people this people he's created for himself and that tells us what God is up to in the birth of this little baby it may also be in Mark 6 3 that we see part of the price Joseph paid did you ever notice this did you hear it in that question when the people say about Jesus isn't this Mary's son Uh, We think, from all we know, that Joseph is probably dead by this time. But even if a father had died, any man in Israel was always referred to as the son of his father, Jesus bar Joseph. And so to refer to a man as the son of his mother was often, in Aramaic, a very harsh expression, something like a very crude English phrase, When someone calls someone a son of a, and then they use a real crude, insulting word for the mother. And so Mark 6, 3 may well reflect that not just years, but decades later in this little village, that Joseph's reputation still is not recovered from his marriage to this pregnant teenage girl. And it's amazing to think about how after Joseph died and in the decades and the centuries and the millennia now to follow, millions of people would make sacrifices for the sake of this one called Jesus. Many would give up their status, their possessions. Many would give up their conveniences and their freedom. Many even their lives. But in a sense, Joseph was the first. Joseph would give up his identity and his reputation for Jesus. And Joseph hadn't even seen him yet. And I think about how for Joseph, how when he looked into other people's eyes, after he had obeyed God, his life was never the same. Eyes that used to look at him in respect and adoration, those, those looks that all of us hunger for, they looked the other way after this. 
But I also think that when he looked into the eyes of this little child, Jesus, and when he saw the love and the adoration of a two- or a three-year-old boy, he knew he'd done the right thing. See, Joseph became in many ways the very first person to learn that who he is in the eyes of everyone in this world doesn't really matter that much. It only matters who you are in the eyes of Jesus. You know, in reflecting on the amazing things that are going on in this first Christmas, could it be that God decided that Jesus, who would be called a friend of sinners, should be raised in a family that knew firsthand what it felt like to be regarded in that spiritually second-class category? Maybe part of the reason why Jesus had such a heart for unrespectable people as he was raised in a family by a father who sacrificed his respectability for his son. Maybe part of the reason Jesus had compassion for women who were walking scandals is that he knew what it meant to his mom. What it meant that his father had stuck by her when she was single and pregnant and when all the righteous people would have said that Joseph should just walk away. I think of how much Jesus, as he was growing up, must have admired his dad's courage. And I think that later after Joseph was long dead and Jesus was now a grown man, how he taught in Matthew 5.20 that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scholars and the Pharisees, that old system, unless that is true, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. I think about how Jesus must have been thinking inside, I have seen this better kind of righteousness firsthand because my father was such a man. And when you think about this, Maybe God had a reason for this odd and painful and lonely way to start a family. Maybe this makes more sense than we think. Maybe God is still calling people who are willing to die to reputation. Maybe God is still calling people, what about you, to die to status, to die to comfort for the sake of true love. Maybe at its heart, this is what righteousness is really all about. Maybe following God and righteousness is not mostly about rules and, and getting that smug, self-satisfied approval we sometimes find in religious circles. Maybe at its heart, it is the willingness to die to reputation, to die to status, to die to comfort for the sake of love. And maybe that's why we worship a Savior who was crucified who also gladly saw his reputation as a righteous man, a sadic, trashed for the sake of sinners, that he would never stop loving. And maybe, maybe it was so that we too, even today, 2,000 years later, might come to know a kind of righteousness that those old Sadakim never could have dreamed of. You see, that is why we are here, Southwinds. That is why we seek to extend this kingdom that was launched 2,000 years ago by that little child. I want to ask you just to reflect for just a moment. When Joseph made that decision to wed Mary, he thought that it was the end of his reputation as a righteous man. He did not fully understand the child he would adopt was going to bring a new kind of righteousness to the whole human race. 
See, the Bible teaches that in the death and the resurrection of Jesus, we have been declared righteous. And today, as we follow God, God is making us righteous. And one day, we will be fully righteous. One day. You see, this is what Christmas ultimately, what celebrating Jesus' birth is truly all about. And I'm just wondering if someone needs to experience this in a fresh way today. Maybe what you need to consider is the price God is calling you to pay to truly celebrate Christmas. Some of you, maybe you've been trying for years to make God happy. Just trying to be good enough. It's not working, is it? Well, I want to tell you today, Jesus died to make you good enough in God's eyes. Amen. It's all you need. And your price to be good enough is to stop trying to pay a price and just receive the gift of God's grace. Will you receive that truth today? Will you trust God today through Jesus? Will you begin a relationship with Joseph's son today? There's some others of you. You've known Jesus for years, and maybe today you need to, in a new way, just rest in the righteousness that he has provided for you. Maybe you need today to slow down and ponder and contemplate the reality that God has given you righteousness in Jesus, and you don't have to strive, you don't have to work, you don't have to worry anymore. Maybe, maybe you just need to take a few moments today and thank God for this little child sent into the world through Mary this little child loved and protected and nurtured by Joseph. Maybe you just need to confess some sins to Jesus today. Just release that burden to him and just experience that his grace is enough. I'm also asking if you are already a follower of Christ that you would consider doing some, something else. And it starts with prayer. Will you be praying starting today and continuing on through this next week or so that God would fill this room with seeking people? Would you ask God for that? Would you call out for that? Would you do that, especially because during this season we, we know that the world stops to remember Joseph's son. And we've provided uh, ways for you to do that, and you can just use those ways, or you can just do it the old-fashioned way and ask someone, make a phone call. See, as we gather this next weekend, we're going to meet, meet on the 22nd, and then we're going to have Christmas Eve Eve services on the 23rd, and then Christmas Eve service two times on the 24th. Would you be praying that God would bring so many people here who don't know him yet, ask him that this new righteousness would spread and would go over many, many, many people who don't yet know it right now? Would you do that? Would you Make this, for you and for us as a church family, what could be the very best Christmas we've ever had.